This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Or, or perhaps you should say the mafia behaved less like a government than it should have. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkoff, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. Today I'm in New York City, joined by FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Joining us from Washington, D.C., is FP contributor Rosa Brooks, senior Future of War fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Finally, also in D.C., we have Yochi Driesen, managing editor of FP News and author of The Invisible Front. Recently, from both of these podcast studios, we began the following conversation. Okay, guys, so back in the day, and by that I mean the first Clinton administration, in which I was a young official, fresh-faced, try and imagine that, um, we uh, launched a program called the Big Emerging Markets Initiative. Uh, and we launched this program because we thought that someday China and India and so forth were going to become important. And the government really never focused on big emerging markets or emerging markets in any kind of coherent uh, front of mind policy way. It was sort of sloughed off to development issues uh, or they were not taken as a kind of a cross-cutting uh, segment of countries that had common interests. We also did it because, frankly, people were interested in other stuff at the time. And this, we thought, would give us some room to play because people weren't you know, that interested. And we were the Commerce Department when we did this. And, you know, nobody lets the Commerce Department lead anything except for stuff that they're not interested in. Anyway, we we did this thing and it sort of took off and it was quite successful and people paid attention and China and India and everybody else cooperated by growing. Then, of course, a more powerful organization than the United States government, Goldman Sachs, came along with a better acronym than our big emerging markets. We called them BEMS. Uh, and they referred to uh, the BRICS, which was Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, I guess, was thrown in there as an S. They should uh, have put in Kazakhstan so it could have been brick with a CK because that sounds more solid than brick with just a C, which is like bric-a-brac. You know, really, that's an excellent point. They messed, and, they messed up the whole. Yeah, acronym. but they're Goldman Sachs, okay? No and seamstresses on the naming team. Oh, and there's no K in Sachs either. Oh, no, God. no, there's an H. But there, well, there you have it. I'm so you know this is really where I was going with this actually. <laughs> Words um, matter. <laughs> anyway, Goldman Sachs comes up with the bricks, and everybody's like, "Wow, the bricks! That's a great idea." You know, and I was like, "Hey, what well, you know? What are we chopped liver? We were the U.S. government. We came up with this idea." But anyway, since it was the same idea essentially, we were like, "Okay, good. Now we're really focused. This is hot." And for a few years, it looked great. You know, Brazil was like the darling of the world and growing fast, and it was going to be the fifth largest economy in the world. It's already the fifth largest country in the world. Um, um, it was, I think, seventh or eighth largest economy. Um, uh, Russia had all this oil, and 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 you know, the population had shrunk, but there was a lot of natural resources, and 
you know, it still was 11 time zones across. It was big and interesting. India was going to be the most populous country in the world. It was growing rapidly. Things were looking pretty good there. China, well, China was China, the greatest economic success story in the history of mankind, when since Deng Xiaoping, they've been averaging 6% growth a year. Everything was going to be great in China. And, you know, South Africa, some of the other big bricks uh, that were not in there, but were, you know, in other iterations of this idea, the Turkeys, the Indonesians, and so that looked great. Okay. So, Yachi, how's that been going? It's fantastic, especially in Brazil. I mean, all they have going right now is no economy, fecal-fueled water for the Olympics. That will be a, doubtlessly a Sochi-like disaster. So glad we got to fecal. Where... I'm so glad we got to fecal this early in the program. <laughs> I was waiting for it the whole time yeah. you were going on. I was ready to jump in. Yeah. Yes, but on the plus side, 25% not into of, the water uh, in Brazil. Of, of Congress there are under are under investigation. Even more to me, as a Chicagoan, I love that <laughs> if Dilma is impeached, he goes to the vice president, who might himself also be a criminal, and then he goes back to Congress, where somewhere between a quarter and two-thirds are under investigation. I feel right at home. This is like the <laughs> Chicago of Latin America. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from, a, you know, no government, no economy, and a It's a good time to be Olympics. a criminal lawyer in Brazil. Exactly. Which is more dangerous, like a favela outside Rio or south side of Chicago? Oh, it pains me to answer that question, honestly. So I won't. Let's just say... Chirac? Yep. Yeah. So uh, on the question of what went wrong... Um, uh, well, let's establish that something has gone wrong. He's talked about Brazil. Would anybody like to address any of these other countries, Russia, China, India, so on? So China and India are unquestionably strong economic performers. Um, and... Uh, and China is slowing down. India has never managed to shed the regulatory and red tape burdens that have held it back. But it was always kind of a question why anybody other than China and India counted in the group of the BRICS. I think, actually, David, it will shock you, but I think the Commerce Department had the right approach, which is focus on emerging economies broadly, and to begin to separate extractive economies from entrepreneurial economies. You know, I once said in something, I think a column in foreign policy, that hmm. the BRICS without China were just brie, <laughs> a, a runny, smelly cheese. <laughs> um, uh, well, but... But India now has the world's fastest rate of economic growth, and their figures are likelier to be solid than China, more solid than China's figures are solid. But the group of the BRICS left out, as you said, countries like Turkey, countries like Kenya, um, Mexico, Mexico, of course, um, countries that, and especially the important distinction isn't growth rates; it's what it's entrepreneurialism, um, and that's where, for example, Russia should never have been in the group because all they were doing was pumping oil. And if that's the standard, why isn't Saudi Arabia in the group too? Whereas Turkey, Mexico, Singapore, countries that are entrepreneurial are building a base for future um, economic success. So that's the distinction. Before, be before Corey gets to kicking them while they're down, um, <laughs> I... I... Um, I, want, I, want, I want to give you a chance, Rosa, to give your sort of take on where you think the BRICS stand now. I saw an article today about Putin giving a speech in which it seemed like uh, 
even Vladimir Putin, giant reservoir of testosterone and self-confidence that he is, seem to be showing the effects of a guy who's running a country that can't get anything right domestically. Yeah, I, I mean, I was actually in, in my mind sort of wondering how much how much what's going on now is uh, a permanent problem with the whole concept of BRICS uh, or whether this is just the growing pains. And, and, and you know, I, I was thinking about the Internet bubble and about startups and you know, there's there's a there's a there's a broad point that I think is still right, which which was kind of the the meta point behind all of the excitement about the BRICS, which is which is the sort of uh, the rise of the rest, the U.S. declining in its in its relative uh, economic and political power, globally speaking, uh, greater diversification of of power across the spectrum to to other countries, including the countries in you know, in the, the actual BRIC countries, but also Turkey, Mexico, various other countries. And, and that story, that that's true, and that's continuing. And whatever short-term setbacks any one of these countries in particular experiences, I think that that, that overall trend is is continuing. Um, and we're going to have to continue to, to, both as the U.S. as a power that has experienced sort of relative decline, we're going to have to contend with that, and we're going to have to contend with, with the changing role of a variety of other players on the global stage. On the other hand, the the sort of bullishness on the BRICS a few years back was a little bit like saying, you know, I love startups. Startups are the new big thing. And then being surprised when some of them fall apart. You know, of course, some of them are going to fall apart. That's that's that, that doesn't change the overall the overall picture. So I and you know, and I'm I am very 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 far from being an expert on any of the BRICS individually. Um, but but. I wonder whether the you know we we we've we've had a kind of standard narrative where first the narrative was oh we're bullish on bricks and now the narrative is oh yeah that was all a big mistake look they're all falling apart and I suspect that both were overstated. Hmm. Okay. Well, now let's turn back to court. Um, what went wrong? So, in the case of Russia, they never diversified their economy away from simple output of oil and natural natural gas. Moreover, the government uh, behaved, uh, it's hard to say, more like a mafiosi or, or more like just your typical authoritarian government. In not... or, or perhaps you should say the mafia behaved less like a government than it should have. <laughs> well, they... Right. Like they didn't set the basis for sustainable economic growth. But second of all, they seemed not to understand that their foreign policy behavior could have economic consequences. What has damaged the Russian economy so much in the last several years is the sanctions that Europe and the United States put on them because of their invasion of Ukraine. There was a 28% reduction in U.S. foreign investment in Russia in the last year alone. So they're not going to get the kind of intellectual capital or foreign investment that they need to be able to diversify their economy because of the way their government is behaving domestically, cracking down on uh, dissent, and internationally, 
invading other countries and trying to create zones of instability around them. So it's not only bad in the near term for Russia, it's going to be bad in the long term because Eastern European countries are diversifying, are reducing their reliance on Russian oil and gas. So their markets are going to go away as a result of this, which is fantastic. That's what the government of Vladimir Putin deserves. Und uh, Dr. Driesen, what is your diagnosis and, and, and your prognosis? I started running for the exit as soon as I heard German. It just brings <laughs> back bad, bad family memories, so away I go. You know, there's, I think the, the only positive side you could find from Brazil, and the thing that, that makes, by the way, was an Austrian bit, accent. It wasn't a German accent. <laughs> it all sounds the same. It all sounds the same. That's what they said But, about us. Yeah. The one thing about Brazil that I find interesting that is very different, certainly from Russia and, and even to a degree from China, is for all the many, many things we talked about that are going wrong, including the fact that its entire executive branch may, may be criminal, you do see the rule of law sort of proceeding the way it should. You have this investigation that's willing to take on not just lower-ranking members of Congress, but even the president. So you don't have a military coup. You have the police doing their job. You don't have that in Russia. You don't have that in China quite as much. And so the idea that you may have the rule of law in one of these countries makes Brazil, to my mind, seem as messed up as it is, as screwed up as it is, the one that might have the, the brightest future of the remaining ones. Right. I mean, That's bad a news really that, persuasive case. The bad news is that half of Congress is under investigation for criminal activities. The good news is they are under investigation. Right. Well, right. see, okay. I think, Yucky, you know how like the tar there's You're a bullseye right, and then there's a ring right around the bullseye. And I think Yucky was right in that ring around the bullseye. I will give you a chance, Rosa. <laughs> What, what? <laughs> I got confused. The metaphor, I, I got lost in there. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a chance at the bullseye. See if you could get just direct the arrow a little closer to the problem that they all have. I can't. Oh, my God. These crisp answers are really going to make this, this a, a short I think podcast. This is a question. I it's not a, it's a no, no. I think, I think Yuki's onto it. But, I mean, when you look at these countries, what do they all have in common? They all have serious governance problems. Corruption. Corruption rule and of governance. Law. Sure, rule absolutely. Of law. Okay, Across the board. In all of them. Okay. Now that I've given you a hint, what's the answer? Yes, thank you. <laughs> the answer is it's slow. You know, the World Bank released a report a few years back uh, in which they cited a really interesting study on how long it took for the fastest and the slowest performing countries to make meaningful progress on a variety of fronts. And they looked at corruption. They looked at rule of law. They, 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 looked, they looked at a variety of economic indicators. They looked at a variety of other governance indicators. And I don't remember the exact numbers. I think this was the 2010 uh, report on global development from the World Bank. Uh, but essentially, the numbers were in the vicinity on rule of law of the fastest performers making meaningful, significant progress. It took about 40 years, um, which should not actually surprise us. Think about how long it took took Western Europe to make meaningful rule of law progress. It took a few Or hundred years. You know, so, so, so do I think that this can change? Of course it can change. I think, however, the, the, the idea that any of these countries are going to transform themselves into Canada – or Sweden from a anti-corruption governance and rule of law perspective in a five to 10 year time frame is, is just a pipe dream. You know, I, I think that we have to recognize that, that cultural change takes a very, very long time, that you can have very superficial reforms that look good on pieces of paper, but don't actually fundamentally change the way things get done, which is often through patronage networks and so forth. Um, you know, it's, it's going to take a generation or more. Um. I want to go back to the extremely important point about the difference between German and Austrian accents to point out that John Stewart in his fantastic 
book, America, has a section. You know, there's a chapter at the end, after all these chapters about how awful America is, there's this chapter on why you want to be American anyway. And it has European war records. And, you know, it's France before and after Napoleon. It's uh, Germany. Uh, and and the, the summary is starts fast, finishes slow. And then for Austria, it simply says, see Germany. So I don't think David's point about Austrian accents being identifiable really merits the case. I vote with Yoki on this. <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about really serious stuff here. Um, well, let me get back to my point in terms of this issue of, of, of governance, because uh, it seems very abstract to people, you know, and, you know, and people, you know, who aren't like in this line of work and who aren't, you know, students studying this. And I heard yesterday the most bizarre statistic from a credible professor of international affairs at an Ivy League school that international affairs majors were like one of the fastest growing majors in colleges across America. And, you know, there are students out there listening to this podcast. And, you know, in the past, I've urged you to stop listening and go have a life. But please stop your friends from studying this nonsense. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on. Anybody who's certain, people who use the words political and science in the same sentence are hallucinating and trying to find a place for themselves in society because they didn't want to do real work like history or economics or so something. So, all of you uh, listeners who are IR or political science majors, would you please transfer to business so you could teach David some marketing? Because he's, he's evidently telling you not to listen to. His own podcast. Don't listen. Just turn it off. Go do something. Lie in the sun. Listen. Have music. You want to listen? We we're sitting here. We're experts, and we're completely incoherent on most of these issues. <laughs> you know, talk to foreign. Go read. You know, foreign policy's website for a month. Read all of our great articles by all of these and great see how experts. Confused you'll become. You'll just get more confused. Nobody. It's not. There's no science to this. It's all. You know multivariable analysis with, you know, we're analyzing six variables and there's a billion variables. No less a source than Bismarck said, politics isn't a science, it's an art. Yeah, and look at Bismarck. He's dead. So... <laughs> it worked for him. <laughs> it worked for him. Uh, yeah, he's out of this racket. But but anyway, the point is, you know, so, set aside my, my prejudices about, uh, you know, um, calling these things academic disciplines when there's so little discipline involved. But in these cases, governance really matters. You know, in Brazil, you have had a country that's got everything going for it. The world was there. The wind was at their back. They couldn't keep their hand out of the till. They may be investigated now, but frankly, this should have been stopped years ago when it was flagged, um, and it wasn't. In Russia... You have a kleptocracy on top of a mafia. In India, the state governments are incredibly bad at managing their states. They pay people who they owe money to a year and a half late. There's corruption at the state government level. Um, and the federal government isn't strong enough to take that into control. China has the federal state issue in addition to having endemic corruption across their economy. Uh, all of them have had a hard time uh, managing for the future, uh, regulating for foreign investment, doing the things that they need to do to, to use the most important term, which was one that Corey used a few minutes ago, 
grow sustainably, grow on an ongoing basis. And, you know, this is this is something that should have been apparent to anybody who went there and talked to these people. But so many investors who went in and so many U.S. officials and other officials from the outside world who went in saw what they wanted to see and didn't want to criticize what was fundamentally wrong. And I think there's an important lesson because, you know, look at Turkey. You know, when Obama came into office, Turkey was the hot country and everybody loved Erdogan. Obama loved Erdogan. They were bosom buddies. And and, and he has now turned into poster child for gutting democracy. Uh, and the country is off the hot list for this kind of thing. If countries don't get governance right, if they don't fight corruption, if they don't make it so that they are responsive to the needs of the people, ultimately they screw up. And that seems so obvious to me, and yet we were willing to sort of put our head in the sand about it all. How do you explain that, Yuck? You you live in Washington. You hobnob with extremely high-powered Washington-type people. Um, I'm surprised to even show up for this podcast because we're just us. Um, right. I mean, I spent the day hobnobbing with a uh, speed demon one one year old. So. It's really oh, yeah. the DC elite. He's very Jack powerful. No, no, young Driesen has a great future. Um, you know, I, I think Rose's point before in, in likening this to startups was spot on. I think you had a lot of countries that looked like a place where you could make money quickly. You had a lot of governments and companies from other countries that thought, pop in there, make a few million, 10 million, 100 million, a billion, whatever it is, get the hell out, and, and who really cares? I mean, when I was living in Iraq, the sort of the kind of gold mentality, the gold rush of people coming in corrupt, incompetent, inept, figuring they can make money, usually making the money, and then leaving. They weren't thinking, what will Iraq be in five years or 10 years or 15 years? They were thinking, how much can I get, how quickly and how easily, compared to anywhere else in the world? And they why, were figuring, why weren't you thinking that? There were like pallets, there were like pallets <laughs> of $100 bills in Iraq. What did you get? Uh, a lot of like disease sure. and hair loss. So there's a, but so there's a fantastic book called Why States Fail, written by a couple of economists, um, and it looks at the economic case that corruption uh, makes sense in a lot of these economies. That is, it's how you buy political allegiance, and in countries with bad governance, as you suggest, David, where there's not institutionalization, where there isn't a free and vociferous media where, in particular, extractive industries are dominant in the economy, it means that the power of the state and the opportunity for economic advancement converge. And, and that makes corruption politically valuable to the people in power or the people who want to be in power. Okay, Yaki. And I, would I would like you to, I mean, no, excuse that, me. Though. No, I want you to go further, but I want to direct you because we only have 10 minutes here and I don't want you to miss this point. And I was looking at the smirking face of Zach, our engineer here, who, as he was <laughs> listening to this thing, I could just imagine what was That's, going through his brain. The there was actually we like to get. a thought bubble <laughs> over his head. It was like, yeah, she's talking about America. Right. Yes, that's the point that I wanted to make. I mean, okay. I mean, David, if your question is, well, what, gee, how come, how come uh, the U.S. economic and political elite was so bullish on the on the BRICS, despite the fact that anybody who thought seriously about them or even not terribly seriously about them would immediately see that, that there are deep, deep governance, corruption, rule of law problems in each of these countries, fundamentally non-responsive to the need, the actual needs of their populations, uh, and that their economic policies were going to be unhinged unconnected to sort of long-term 
uh, meaningful development goals. Um, you know, that that very same American political and economic elite, this is relates to the subject of our last podcast on, you know, why does Donald Trump's approach to foreign policy generate so much support from ordinary Americans, strangely enough, is because in this country, too, we have very not as profound, but quite profound governance and rule of law problems. And there are all sorts of ways in which obviously our own economic and political elites are not terribly interested, as Yoki said, in, in, in what is going to benefit the population of this country either, that there, there is certainly a culture of looking for short-term economic gain, and the BRICs offered that, and that's really, frankly, all that quite a lot of American elites were interested in from the, from the get-go. It wasn't that, that they were in denial about the corruption and governance problems in the BRICs, it was just they didn't care. That is absolutely correct, right? Goldman Sachs goes in, sells these BRICs, money starts flowing in, Goldman Sachs makes money on the deals going in. The governments start doing better. Goldman Sachs lends them money. Goldman Sachs does lots of financings, and they get out before the shit hits the fan, just mm -hmm. as they did in the real estate market. So they make a ton talking up these things, and they don't end up holding the bag on the problem. And even when they do, as happened in the real estate market, the U.S. government or somebody else, the IMF, will come and bail them out and make sure that they get paid even as the countries get squeezed. We've seen this in Greece and elsewhere. That's one form of corruption. Clearly, Citizens United and, you know, you have the Bernie Sanders campaign, mm -hmm. which, frankly, for my money, is a much more surprising story than the Donald Trump campaign, because here is Absolutely. Bernie Sanders going against the, 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 the establishment of the Democratic Party and winning, you know, eight straight primaries. And, you know, he has struck a nerve. Um, and that nerve has to do with the fact that this U.S. system uh, has become co-opted by the moneyed elites. It's not, I don't think that we're less corrupt. I think we're differently corrupt. I think we have white-collar corruption. I think we've made corruption into part of our system. We've institutionalized it with things like Citizens United and super PACs and, 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 and the money primaries having more importance than the regular primaries, and on and on and on. So we are, you know, as corrupt as these other countries... So that just goes back to the question. Is the real secret that you really shouldn't be corrupt until you're big enough to afford it? I don't agree with that analysis. We are not as corrupt as uh, South Africa, as corrupt as China, as corrupt as India. Um, and the difference is because you have a court system in this country where you can bring in the rule of law. Um, okay, but Yoki, stand by. I'd like you to report from Chicago on this in a second. <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to defend the city of Chicago, but it is not the norm around the country. Um, and the rule of the reliable recourse to courts for redress of grievance is a hugely important advantage the United States has and that free societies generally have. And that's why their economies tend to be more sustainably productive than other places. The other thing uh, that I don't agree with in your analysis, in particular about investment in China, is you make it sound like Goldman Sachs was the only investor in China. When, in fact, a, an enormous amount of American investment in China was people who make things that were looking for lower labor costs. And it wasn't so much big investors and big companies. Um, 
it, it was medium-sized ones. And they are now returning to the United States to do their manufacturing for two reasons. The first, labor costs in China are skyrocketing. Uh, and second, because you have, with the advances in robotics, you can do robotic-assisted um, manufacturing here in the United States. Our challenge is going to be that's not going to produce jobs. What's well, China's challenge, too. I think one of the big challenges is that these emerging economies may have emerged too late. And that in terms of global development, as we move towards automated manufacturing and much higher productivity economies where there's less correlation between economic growth and job creation, they are going to be squeezed in the same way that we are, except in the case of China, where you have four or 500 million people are unemployed and underemployed who've been waiting for a job. If they don't get that job, they have a real stability issue. Um, and so this is going to be a, a very, very big problem for the planet. Yahi. Chicago gives you a unique perspective on American corruption. I just thought I would give you a chance to discuss it. American corruption, American violence, American sports, hopelessness and futility. It's a There's, long list of things my beloved city has bestowed upon me. They're, they're, it's, yeah. uh, Which of those would you like to discuss first? I'd be happy to discuss any of them. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about the sports futility. I actually think sports futility is the way to go because... Another thing likening all of the countries you've talked about are sports-related catastrophes. I mean, Sochi was overpriced, disastrous, and completely forgettable. The Olympics coming up in Brazil will be, at best, a disaster, if not a catastrophe. I want to hear. A, I want to hear the Indian. Now, no, what's the Indian sports catastrophe? The two poor guys that tried to make it to the major leagues got I, their movie rights made oh into a crappy God. movie with John Hamm. And oh got caught. my God! I was. <laughs> I that? would have bet you one. How about that? I would have bet you one million dollars. That's what you were coming up with. <laughs> million dollar arm. Should have taken. <laughs> that. Damn it! I should have. Like that, the money I left behind that's in Iraq. A, and that's a bet. Again. And the Chinese gave a had ran a great Olympics. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's true. They're, they're not using most of what they built as parking lots, but beforehand they were great. Yeah, they were huge. Exactly. And many American centimillionaires go to South Africa for safaris. Anyway, um, do you want to talk seriously about, you know, I mean, you actually come from a place that is rife with corruption and rife with violence and has a lot of the traits of the third world. I'm, I'm uh, getting my shovel and digging myself deeper. But when Mayor Daley, the younger, was still the mayor and unlike his father, didn't actually die in office, just sort of intellectually died in office. The city was corrupt, but it worked. And that, I think, was really interesting and in what some of these countries had going for them for a while and don't anymore. Chicago unions took money that they didn't deserve. Chicago elected officials spent money they didn't have. But the city kind of functioned. So everyone who lived there could kind of look the other way at all the compromises and sketchiness that was needed to make it work. Then at a certain point, the city stops working. And then all you see is the corruption and all you see are the compromises. And I think that's to a degree what's happening in some of the countries we've been talking about. If you're China, and things are growing quickly, infrastructure is being built, cities are booming, so you don't pay attention to the fact that the train tracks aren't laid correctly and that the high-speed trains can be death traps or that there are you know, fireworks factories that can explode at any time. But then at a certain point, the economy slows and those things become more and more apparent. I think that's what you're seeing in Brazil. I think that's what you're seeing in China. I think that's to a degree what you're seeing in Russia and maybe what you end up seeing in India as well. And then it will make me look at my beloved world and see my beloved hometown and want to hide under a desk and sob. Or alternatively, <laughs> conclude that people from Chicago will have an added advantage in working of the emerging economies of tomorrow. Obama's That's 16. a stretch. That's a stretch. 
says St. Louis, right? Say, <laughs> <laughs> says another portion of this world. All right. Um, we have just a couple of minutes left here, literally just two or three minutes. I would like to give each one of you a chance to address whichever issue it is from this preceding podcast um, that most resonates with you. Hopefully the one about all those international affairs majors growing and, and just sort of telling them really what they should be doing instead. They should be going to work for Goldman Sachs, obviously, and make off like bandits and get off scot-free. Yucky, yucky. Yeah, Rose and I are looking at each other here in Washington. I'm thinking, man, I should have come back from Iraq with with a pallet of cash. I made some bad life choices. I went to Iraq in 2003, and and my suitcase was stolen by bandits in Fallujah. I lost my money. Poor little little young Dreesen has one of these T-shirts that says, my daddy went to Iraq, and all I got was this lousy (laughs) T-shirt. Actually, I kind of want to make that T-shirt. That sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you'll make your money, which goes to the point about entrepreneurial economies be the, being the only ones that have sustained development and prosperity because governance matters hugely. And this is why China is going to probably get stuck in the middle income trap. It's why India hasn't been able, despite all of its great um, economic development, to leap out of the middle income trap, governance really matters. Governance matters, folks. Masterful. Masterful. That is the slogan for this one. Go turn that into a bumper sticker, sell it, make millions, bribe a congressman, gain influence in the United States. Let me just say one last thing. If this presidential election cycle has proven anything, it's that money actually can't buy you elections because all of the money backing Republican candidates did not produce a Republican presidential. Ladies ladies and gentlemen, write this down. The good news doesn't matter. Write this down. Because when Hillary Clinton wins and Corey says, you see the corrupt Democratic Party establishment (laughs) bought the presidency for her, (laughs) it's going to be a different story altogether. Well, take what this take from this what you may, ladies and gentlemen, but whatever you do, come back. You know, this podcast has been growing rapidly. Uh, We've been doing this for about six months now. We've been getting wonderful reviews, great feedback. We've returned that feedback with insults, and yet the feedback grows. Um, The audience has grown. And now you have a responsibility because we want the audience to grow twice as fast from this week to next week. So please just go find one more person to listen. If each of you did that, then twice as many people would be listening, and we would not feel like we're shouting down a well. Uh, And, you know, listen to Rosa, listen to Yucky, listen to Corey. They all need encouragement. They all need to feel better about themselves. We're sitting here crying right now. They they need to feel better about themselves. Please help these people be the kind of smiling East and West Coast elites that America depends on and has for so long. Thank you for joining us for ER, and we look forward to joining you again very soon. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.